0: You're listening to episode 146 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones.
1: And I'm Steph McKenna.
0: And we are joined once again by Flo.
2: Hi, me again. (laughs) Lovely to have you back.
0: Always a pleasure. So yes, we'll be talking about the book club. In just a moment it is the 14th of may 2021 here in norwich as we're recording and on the show today we have liz breslin talking to tiffany atkinson which was part of our imagining the city residences
1: Yes, as we have mentioned before, back in February, we welcomed five writers from other UNESCO cities of literature to Norwich for a virtual residency. So Liz was joining us from Dunedin in New Zealand and she was embarking on a creative project that looked at watching modern life through webcams. So she was looking at webcams in Norwich and back in her home city. And she also spent some time working with our Lit from the Insiders who are a group of young people in Norfolk who are learning all about literature and the arts and working in those areas. So um, it was lovely to have Liz here. And yes, this conversation was recorded as part of her residency.
0: Yeah, so all of those residencies were having to come up with ways to give the impression of a residency despite not actually being able to be here or even leave their own home due to various lockdown realities.
1: They had to get a bit extra creative, didn't they? But I think they all did a wonderful job. They were examining and watching and sort of immersing themselves in Norwich through computer screens. And they came up with really great creative responses to that time. And they also penned some really useful, practical tips for other writers. So if you head over to the National Centre for Writing website and under what song click on imagining the city, you will find all of those commissions and articles for you to read and enjoy.
0: So Liz and Tiffany talk a lot about Liz's poetry and her route into poetry and what she's working on at the moment. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Lit for the Insiders, actually, because Liz has lots of lovely things to say about that group of, of young writers as well. And do make sure you listen all the way through, because at the end of the episode, Liz treats us to a couple of readings, one from her upcoming new collection. So Flo, before we get over to the interview with Liz, tell us what is happening in book club land.
2: Sure. So it's coming to a really exciting point in book club. We're coming to the end of our two month reading period for our current book club book, which is A Rising Man by Abir Mukherjee. I've really, really enjoyed rereading it this week, I have to say, and I can't wait to talk to other readers about it next week and the week after in our Zoom discussion sessions. There are a few more places for those. So if anybody would like to join us, there's still time to book your free place on those.
0: We'll stick uh, links to all of this stuff down in the show notes.
2: Yeah, great. Thank you. I also just wanted to give everyone a heads up of what our next book is going to be because we have a very special event coming up on the 2nd of June, which is the Seibald Lecture, which is run every year by our partners over at the British Centre for Literary Translation um, and with the British Library as well. And... This year, I don't know how they've done it, but they've got the very wonderful Jumpa Lahiri giving the lecture. Jumpa is the writer of Unaccustomed Earth, The Interpreter of Maladies, The Lowland. Um, She's won all sorts of different prizes and is a really interesting writer who now writes in Italian and self-translates. And her new novel is coming out uh, very shortly, I believe. It's called Whereabouts Um, and yeah, so we've we've got this lecture coming up and I thought what a fantastic opportunity that is for us in the book club. So yeah, I just thought I'd give everybody advance warning really that we're gonna be reading one of Jumper's books for the next book club. And the Seybald lecture is happening on the 2nd of June. So it's quite early on in our two-month reading window for this book. We're going to be reading Jumper's book, in other words, over June and July. And the lecture's free to access. It's online. Um, all the details are on our website, and you can click through to the British Library website to reserve your place.
0: Sounds great. I'm fascinated by the idea of self-translating. Yeah, That's not something we've encountered much. we talked to a lot of translators and writers who have had their work translated, but self-translation, I don't think we've covered at all.
2: Yeah, it's. I mean, she's just... A wonderful writer anyway so you don't have to be interested in literary translation I should say to to just really appreciate her work, want to come to the lecture and to join in with the book club Um, and it's a really lovely book. It sounds really intriguing because as someone who doesn't speak any other
1: languages um, and who you know has some knowledge of translation through work but I really don't know that much about it. um, I've recently started reading Polly Barton's book Uh, 50 Sounds which is very much again about learning Japanese immersing yourself in Japanese culture and getting to know the language through sort of lived experience and that kind of that sounds very similar to this book as well and I can imagine why that would be absolutely fascinating for anyone sort of regardless of whether you speak Italian or Japanese or you know have any kind of background like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Jim Palahiri is just a fantastic writer of, mm. um, she's fantastic on cities, actually. So for anybody Ooh. who lives in a city or loves the city, has experience being in a city. So I'm sure that's probably most people on Earth. I'm sure you'd find um, something in her writing. She's just so brilliant at that feeling of being in a busy, bustling public space and all of the different associations that can bring up for us.
0: Fantastic. So as well as the kind of official events, there'll also be ongoing discussion over on the Discord community?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So during June and July, we'll have our usual book club set up. There'll be blog posts, there'll be the Discord community. We'll have some discussion sessions as well. Um, Those haven't quite gone up on the website yet because we're still reading A Rising Man by Abir Mukherjee for the rest of May. But yeah, 2nd of June, Jimpers' lecture goes out. We'll start reading in other words together. Fantastic. Can't wait.
0: Yeah, Discord is, our community over there is a great place to be both for this and for general chatter about writing and reading. There's been a really interesting discussion just this week about word counts and whether they're a useful Kind of metric to judge your progress with writing and uh, and one person was talking about how even if they hit their word counts they still feel somehow like it wasn't enough uh, so yeah lots of really interesting discussion about what that means to different people
2: that seems to be a question that comes up again and again and it's just always really interesting to hear what other writers have to say about that and i've like found so many good writing tips on discord as well um i'm a poet just trying to branch out into fiction a little bit and it's just really great to have such a supportive community over there
1: and before we move on to Liz and Tiffany's fantastic discussion, I just wanted to remind everyone that City of Literature at Norfolk and Norwich Festival begins next week. So it's Ooh. running from the 21st to the 30th of May, and we're hosting really exciting range of in-person and online events and experiences. So we've got YouTube discussions, we've got websites launching with uh, online seasonal resources, immersive soundscapes in person, performances there's there's a huge amount of stuff going on and it's all completely free to experience so do head over to national center for writing's website and under what's on hit the city of literature button
0: fantastic in-person event as well how exciting is that
1: can you believe it? Our first socially distanced event in Dragon Hall. I am so excited, and it's going to be and it's going to be absolutely fantastic.
0: Yeah, actually, this week uh, we we just scheduled in a, a future podcast interview, which will take place at Dragon Hall with a writer in residence who is actually in residence. So yeah, things are slowly starting to unlock, which is wonderful. Okay, so let's hand over to Tiffany Atkinson, who is chatting to Liz Breslin.
3: Well, it's a great pleasure for me to be speaking to you today, Liz. Liz Breslin is a virtual resident of Dragon Hall, Um, so in another universe we'd probably be having a coffee somewhere in central Norwich, but as it is, I'm in Norwich and Liz is in New Zealand um so right from the start we'll have some some interesting different experiences to talk about um Liz is um a a writer of poetry and prose and articles and drama and she's a performer um and she has two poetry collections um which is particularly uh, of interest to me because I'm also a poet so um I'll be looking forward to speaking to her about those but uh first of all Liz what I want to ask you um in the context of a podcast about writing and the writing life is how did it all get started for you? How did you become a writer? Can you, can you say a bit about how that journey has been for you and how you got started?
4: I think I've always written. I don't, so I don't know what any kind of start point was. But I think in terms of calling myself a writer, there was this point about 10 years ago when um, it was during the ski season here you'd be sitting on a ski lift and the person next to you would turn to you and say oh what do you do and um I used to do all kinds of jobs you know just to have the time to do whatever else it was I wanted to do but I schooled myself that year that I was going to say to them I'm a writer when they turned to me on the ski lifts and so it's kind of built from that you know taking myself seriously as a writer and then I say I'm doing it and then oh I'm doing it
3: (laughs) Oh, that's really, yeah, that's really interesting. That that moment where you say, I'm a writer, or particularly, I'm a poet. And, and what did the people on the ski lift do when you said that?
4: Well, you know, we had much more interesting conversations than if I'd have said, yeah. you know, any of the other day jobs that I had been doing. Not that they were uninteresting, and uh, it ju- just wasn't where my heart was. On one of the ski lifts, I'd been writing this play called The Last Call Centre over in New Zealand, And I actually found I was talking to someone who worked in a call centre and I got invaluable information from them that I was then Mm. able to go home that night and write into my play. So it always made for interesting conversations. Sometimes people would tell you about what they were writing.
3: And ask you to read it. (laughs) I've got a novel here. I wonder if you'd mind having a look or something. Oh,
4: that that came a little bit later when I added the words writer and editor. And then, yeah, you know, (laughs) yeah, that did.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've also kind of drawn uh, attention to an important point there that writing is quite often something that maybe particularly poets do, but it's not how we earn our living. So, you know, we do lots of different things, but there's something about being able to sort of take that where your heart is seriously that I think is a really important moment. Related to that, I I wonder if you could say a bit about what what the writing life, you know, taking yourself seriously as as a writer... How that has changed, if you can say this, it's a big question. How it's changed uh, the shape of your life, how it's shaped decisions in your life.
4: So, I think for the longest time, I didn't take my writing seriously and put it at the centre of things, and there were there were various reasons that I mean having children and being in quite an an emotionally abusive relationship a lot of other things like took my energy away from that and kind of part of getting the strength to um, be myself um, came from the strength to prioritize my writing and and since I have been doing that I've um, you know it's become more and more important because it's I, I don't know how to say it right. It's become more and more apparent who I am through the act of writing out who I am, if that makes sense.
3: In in relation to that, I'm mean, i I'm going to ask a really kind of practical question because um, I'm always looking for tips about this. It's like, how do you get down to it? Can you s- sort of say a bit about how a, how a day looks for you, how you put that work in the centre of lots of other responsibilities? I mean, you say you're a parent and you're doing lots of different kinds of work. I,
4: I, for many years, wrote only in the margins of things, which meant I developed my memory to a really extraordinary extent. And I would keep things in my head and I would keep refining them in my head. And then when I got time, whether it was when I'd put the kids to bed or whether it was a, a drive in between jobs or something, I would then transcribe it from my head onto the paper or the screen or wherever it was and that I think really helped me with a lot of the performance stuff that I do as well because I was able to work and work and work it through um, in terms of sound before I ever saw a page um, and it also I mean really helped with the procrastination because when you only have a little bit of time you and it's so important then I don't know I wanted to use it but mm-hmm. then I did find as well so 2019 I was on a residency in Krakow, with a UNESCO City of Literature, and I had two months to sit and write and work. And I, I found a different way of working. And in that way of working, the procrastination was actually really important, like the, the the dreams around the edges of what it was. And I think. That has made my my writing sort of richer and looser because there hasn't it's it's relaxed the urgency in it in a really good way as well. So I'm really learning to embrace the chaos um, in having <laughs> more freedom and in making myself more freedom to write.
3: Uh, I'm just interested to hear a bit more about sort of relaxing into it and and not feeling the urgency. Does that mean that? Everything that happens is, is is kind of grist to the mill, or does it mean that you perhaps take a kind of internal pressure off? Because I think probably a lot of writers feel that internal pressure all the time. You know, if you're not sitting in front of the laptop or with your notebook in your hand, it doesn't count. But are you suggesting that maybe it all counts that, that all of the other things that you're doing generate material?
4: Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I love that phrase grist to the mill. I don't know where that comes from, but I love
1: it. No, I
3: don't <laughs>
4: I do feel like it all counts, and I, I feel like it all makes it, like it makes it richer in some way to be able to pay attention to. It. But I want to say as well, it's it's like, as well as a thing that I've made up for myself, it is actually a real privilege to be able to sit and pay attention to it. So I want to, if I do have an urgency, it is that that I know what a privilege it is, and so I want to make sure that I kind of soak it all in, you know.
3: Thinking about the, the Krakow um, residency, I think, did that involve some collaborative work?
4: Mm, it wasn't so, not so much in Krakow. I, although, yeah, what I did there was um, I worked on a project about, I've got this story, The Trumpeter of Krakow, because my mum is Polish. It's, yeah. you know, it's her first language. Um, I was grown-up on this story about how the trumpeter stands on the tallest tower every hour of every day and plays his um trumpet tune but he doesn't finish it because it symbolizes when the evil tatars shot him through the throat and then the i know right the evil (laughs) tatars you know who are actually you know quite oppressed people as it goes yeah quite oppressed very oppressed on the scale of oppression they sit somewhere quite high anyway um I did some investigations into that um, story, you know, the truths behind it and the stories people tell themselves behind this, that story. Um, I did a lot of cut and paste of what I found of that story on the internet, but also I went to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west of the city and found different people with different stories that were somehow related to the trumpeter's story Mm, and then mm. i wrote their stories and so i guess that was a massive exercise in collaboration with kind of um the histories and the now stories and the um crazy things that happen with those stories on the internet and kind of everything beyond so it was an interesting time (laughs)
3: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I mean, it also it makes me feel slightly wistful for the time when travel was kind of possible. Oh, gosh, um, I know. And yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm just going to turn to the elephant in everyone's room, perhaps particularly our rooms over here in the UK, perhaps not so much in New Zealand, and, and just sort of bring in the spectre of lockdown and the pandemic and how that's changed all of our lives in in profound ways, but including, you know, our writing. And, and I just wanted to ask you what your experience has been. I know it's very different from ours on a pragmatic level, but, you know, if it has been significant for your writing, how you do it, what you think about, um, and and so on.
4: Yeah, so I, I um, obviously, I can't judge what the lockdown's been like over there because honestly I'm lost in just I'm just re- I can't make sense even reading it in the news so so living it must be a whole
3: whole other level um, <laughs> I don't think any of us knows the answer I know
4: to that. <laughs> but I mean how it, I think how it was here I mean how it still is so we are still technically in lockdown level one which means our borders are closed uh, yeah pretty much closed with exceptions when so we had lockdown level four is how we started out and um, we could we could stay in our homes we could go walking we could see i mean i'm not sure if it was new zealand who, who coined the term bubble but i don't remember hearing it before that there were people only in our immediate bubbles and they were strict regulations about what you could do outside that. So my life was basically um, I would sit in my house, I would video call my family, I would go for a walk. You know, lucky me, I could walk down to the lake. Uh, I would... Right, I would. I watched a lot of you know, I watched a lot of screen stuff, yay for screens! But the other extraordinary thing that happened for those two months of our level four lockdown when nobody could work and there was we didn't have any online shopping or anything, even it was just like really essential services. Um, no books coming to the door with the postman, you know, mm-hmm. we weren't allowed to do that. The government. Um, had a a wage subsidy for people and we were allowed to apply for it. And uh, as freelancers or as self-employed creators and practitioners, we were allowed to apply for that subsidy. And so I actually, because of all the work I got cancelled for lockdown, I actually got government subsidy for it, which took away an enormous amount of stress and Mm -hmm. gave me this kind of gift of time that you would think you would do something um, more than... um, I don't know I don't, can't even remember what I watched entire seasons of watched entire seasons <laughs> of something I played me this poem too. game with a friend who would send me every day these little um different colored cards they look like paint swatches but they had different words on them and I wrote a poem collection about people it was called happy hour people on a honeymoon cruise you know these two women who get it together and live happily ever after out on the sea high seas somewhere you know like pure yeah. fantasy yeah so yeah. I did nothing of any use with my government subsidy but
3: um Oh, I don't know. know. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that. Also, I think it's great. (laughs) Any (laughs) any government people who might be listening here, hello. You know, writers (laughs) need support for times like this. Um, But I think there's so many interesting things there about you know what, because we all have this fantasy. I think people were talking about being busy earlier and how we all have this fantasy that oh, if I had six months, I'd write the best collection or I'd finish my novel. And lo and behold, there it is. And actually. My experience with a lot of writer friends is that because of the various stresses, because of home educating children here and various sort of interruptions, um, it's actually been very difficult. It's been a, it, it, that, that time, that gift of time in inverted commas has actually been stressful in itself um yeah and also it's
4: not a writing retreat it's a pandemic you know like
3: (laughs) (laughs) yes good point (laughs) yeah yeah it's not a yoga retreat either yeah all of those things yeah yeah Yeah, Um, that's right exactly um um, I mean that makes me want to ask sorry about you know because I, I don't know if the same thing happened um in New Zealand but certainly here at the beginning certainly in our first lockdown back this this time last year actually there was a sudden sort of Outpouring of work from writers, and there were various kind of blogs set up and, and websites set up by, I think the the ex-poet laureate Carol Duffy set one up for writers to respond. Mm. And <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, you know, I have I've got no position from which to respond to this. And do you, do you, do you have any sort of thoughts about that? About what what the job is of a writer or of a poet in in a time of global crisis you know is it important to try to think these through um these things through or um you mentioned your sort of escape story is that perhaps just as important to use your imagination not to be in the present
4: Maybe, and I'm just thinking back to that thing about what you said, PS governments, you know, value your your writers and stuff. It's all, it's, um, you know, you can value the writers and trot them out when you need some kind of, like, nice narrative sense made of what's going on, can't you? But, like, um, I am really pleased how people have turned to valuing the arts, like, either for themselves or, like, in, you know, what they find from other people. I, I, I think that's a really... That's a really hard call because writing, I think, for, for me is fundamentally like, what am I trying to say, Tiffany? The urgency <laughs> of the writing is like something I feel like I have to do in response to something, whether it's an idea mm-hmm. or like an emotion or. And I didn't get that myself with COVID. Like, I wrote one or two poems about, uh, wrote this one. Um, about recapture screens and one of the lines is you haven't touched another human in weeks if a leaf falls can you if a leaf falls can you if a leaf falls can you prove that you're not a robot you know that idea of who yeah who are we when we've got no touch points but that I think that's the only thing covid wise that came out of me and actually my so I write a Um, fortnightly column for the um, newspaper which carried on during lockdown and we we had some guidelines given to us somewhere about okay obviously don't ignore COVID but don't make it all about COVID and there I Mm. I feel like more for people who work in the front lines of like journalism and opinion and that that must be the hard struggle that they've got to carry on saying things that are the news. But what do you say when, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think as creative writers, we have more license to play around with that, maybe?
3: Yeah, play, I think, is a really important part of this, isn't it? And, and is a way of responding creatively, but also emotionally, um, you know, that the kind of pressure to be terribly serious. And I think that, that in the first stage of the lockdown, there was this kind of sense that everyone had to be terribly serious about it. And uh, eventually, you just get tired of that, or you run out of emotional resources, and you kind of you don't go back to normal. But your your old kind of concerns and themes stay with you, and and, and it doesn't feel like that's got to be the main topic of everything, of everything that you write or indeed read. Um, but I was wondering about, and I sort of go back to the uh, your experience of collaboration because it's not something I have much experience of, and I'm really interested to know what how you understand collaboration as a writer. I mean, I suppose one of the old-fashioned ways of thinking about it is that you write a book with somebody else. But I realise that that is a very narrow understanding of what it might mean. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit about how you feel it's shaped your, uh, your practice, um, your experience, um, any, any kind of reflections on, on that as part of your writing life
4: sure so i've got two two things i'd like to talk about there um one of them is called poetic justice and the other one is um, the possibilities project the possibilities project was a lockdown thing but i kind of knew that it was possible because of the way we'd always and already worked through what we'd done with poetic justice which is being here and writing so I spend some of my time in Dunedin and I spend some of my time up in Wanaka where my kids are and in Wanaka there was a very scant writing scene which is to say that about 15 years ago I met um, uh, Laura Williamson who is also a poet and is interested in writing and there was nothing and so we decided to make something we made Poetic Justice which is an we started off as a an open mic and we had all these different themes to try and get people along like we had a covers night or we had a one time we had a men's night and we said we'd give the men a free drink if they came and read a poem <laughs> like they do with women in clubs we had yeah. 33 <laughs> men turn up that night in a small town <laughs> yeah and it was amazing you know just for the for the sharing of things yeah um yeah. because and I think um what we've always tried to do so and we've done a lot of things since like we've um run like brought a lot of people into the area and run workshops and um for a while we ran the um slam heats and regional finals for the national poetry slam and last year we did a we did like a poetry tour of the Otago Central Rail Trail and went in all, all the old halls. So, like, it's really good, the stuff we can do together. And it's just building and building and building it and thinking, like, mm. we're in that kind of place where mm, poems don't come naturally. So how how do we put the poems in there? You know, there's this um, – mm. I think it's Adrian Henry who said it. I'm not entirely sure. You might know. But there's this line that said, most, po- most people – don't like most poems because most <laughs> poems don't like most people right. and we're really yeah. like for me so the collaboration has been the kind of the kind of quest or something to be not that you know to be the, right. the poems yeah. that are yeah with the people sort of thing um, and yeah. so one of the other people we collaborate with a heck of a lot is Annabelle Wilson Um, who came along to an open mic once 10 years ago, and we've been doing stuff together since. We do these shows where we just get the audience to put words in a hat and then we pick them out and find our poems and do, you know, again, trying to make it interesting for them. Um, I wrote, when I came back from Krakow, I'd written a poem called Possibilities, which um, is after a poem by Vishwa Szymborska, which I just love that poem. Yeah. And read it, a workshop I did, and Annabelle, and and did a, a, you know, I think a workshop thing around it, and Annabelle the next day sent me a poem that she'd written, um, like, in response to that, and it was beautiful, because, yeah, because everything she writes is beautiful. Then lockdown came, and I thought, this could be a thing, and so I talked to um, Nikki Page at Dunedin City of Literature and said, look, it's probably a silly idea, but um, we did this thing, and I explained it, and we thought, you know, we thought we might get enough people sending in enough poems and recording them for a couple of weeks. And we got, I think, six weeks worth in the end. And they're all up on the Dunedin City of Literature website. And they're like, we got them because we got them from, I don't know, I think there's some from South Korea, which some local students here ended up reading, you know, just some had come in from all over the world. And it, yeah, I don't know, turned into a much bigger collaboration than I ever could have hoped.
3: (laughs) That, oh, that's fantastic and, and yeah the internationalism of those things and it, it kind of makes me think that, that I mean we, you said earlier we're all spending a lot of time on our screens and, and certainly it's very difficult for most of us anyway to organize things like those fantastic nights with you, you know involvement from the audience and open mics and so on. But you know, as we're doing now, you can speak to people very easily from all across the world right now. And and, and maybe there's never been a better time for that kind of collaboration or conversation or or I'm thinking of all kinds of different ways of describing that. And I'm wondering, I'm just imagining that, you know, there are lots of people sitting in their rooms across various countries writing and perhaps wanting to get involved in something more collaborative. I mean, do you have any advice for how somebody might start something like that up? I
4: don't, gosh, Tiffany, like the only thing I've really ever done is talk to the people that I know and then talk to, um, you know, the people that they know. And it, I, yeah. I guess, um, I, I have been, I've made myself brave enough to, when I could go along to things in person, you know, turn up to open mics or find a writer's group I could join in on. But i, I believe you know those things are really still possible online as well like the writers group that I'm in now we share a lot of our stuff just um you know in an online format and there are so many zoom open mics going on and it's I mean it's it's different but um it's what we've got (laughs) in some ways like when our lockdown happened because I again, because I spend some of my time living somewhere where culture is not necessarily so readily accessible outside my front door, being able to access, I mean, the National, I know the National Theatre in the UK um, streamed all their shows for free during our lockdown was incredible for me, the amount of things I could access through my screen. So actually a big screen fan. I think my screen usage was up again 46% last week because of all this webcam watching I'm doing Norwich at the moment and I'm loving it oh yes (laughs) yes yeah
3: yeah yes I mean yeah I I have to say I think yeah I mean I'm I've never been a huge screen fan and and that's changed over over the last few months well year really because that's been my access to the larger world and it's incredible what's out there and how it stimulates your writing. I mean, that is also collaborative, isn't it? So responding to a piece of ballet or something or whatever it is that you see.
4: Oh, 100%. And someone told me the other day that I was ekphrastic. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I don't know what that means. And she was oh, like, it means, yes. <laughs> means you respond to images. I was like, oh, I'm ekphrastic. So I'm like, yes. <laughs>
3: Yes, I will take that. Thank you. Yeah, take that. Have a T-shirt made. I'm ekphrastic.
4: Sorry, I should say someone told me that the other day. I should say my girlfriend told me that the other day, just in case she listens to this and she's like, I'm not just someone. And I'll be it. like, no, yeah. you are not just someone. Just putting it yeah. out there.
3: <laughs> <laughs> You're living in an ekphrastic household. Yes. Although I, I guess we all are because we're all responding to images <laughs> at the moment. You know, that's for a lot of us, that's kind of our... Our, our contact with most of the outside world um, mm. and I just want to say you know I kind of agree with you that, 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 that the, the way in which um, local writing groups of which there are many in Norwich um, and poetry groups have gone online has been brilliant and I've attended mm. lots of reading readings and um, online it's great it's it's somehow less um, going back to what you said earlier about you know p- most People don't like poems because most poems don't like most people. The the informality of that, the fact that you don't have to sit there and do poetry face when you listen, or um, yes. you, know, you can be making a cup of tea or stroking the dog or whatever. It's it's actually made, I think, listening to poetry a lot more accessible. Um, totally, and, and more pleasurable. Yeah.
4: Um, I had a really good time. I did a workshop with the um the lit from the insiders. Um. Oh yes. Um and it, it it was totally like that like you say like when we had some of the prompts some of them would just switch their screens off and off they go and I wouldn't know what they'd be doing that like but then we'd all come back together and have a chat and there was this great sense of well I hope they felt it too like community sort of being in the room together for a wee bit and then we went off and did our own thing again.
3: Yeah so I think that that that's certainly made some of the accessibility issues, and I mean those in in the kind of broader cultural sense around poetry, I think that seems to be helping. So that's another kind of good thing that's come out, I think, of of the circumstances. Mm. I I wanted to ask you about, because I've really enjoyed reading both of your poetry collections, uh, Alzheimer's with a Spoon and In Bed with the Feminists, which I think is out soon, isn't it? In a couple of months, the second one? Yeah, it's
4: hopefully all going according to plan. It's going to be out in May this year, so we're just editing and Brilliant. and doing a cover and all that kind of thing
3: all the all the fun stuff yeah congratulations thank you I'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> good I'm glad I'm glad
4: um, um haven't you got a new collection coming out as well though I should be congratulating you as well
3: oh thank you yes I think it's just come out yes Lumen um yes yeah, so, so I know that the excitement of getting the cover is like fantastic <laughs> it's, like, yes. it's like kind of choosing your wedding dress or something it's like the best bit for me when you can see it as a book um However, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to, to ask you about um, some of the difficulties of getting to the, you know, getting that product done. Um, mm. And in particular, because I was struck with your um, collections, um, and obviously, you know, you'll, you'll be able to say more about this and better, but the, the first collection seemed to be very much um, processing a, a complicated family history, um, a matrilineal story, Um story of uh of your your mother and grandmother i think and the second one is a uh, stylistically very different i was sort of struck by the, the the sort of experimental punchiness of it and some of the the sort of prose poems and the humor of it um it also seems to address being a parent oneself so there's a kind of a like a generational shift it feels but my experience of finishing one book and having a first collection and then moving to the second was was very difficult. And, and I, I understand that that's quite a common difficulty. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to, to ask you a bit about how, how each book kind of came into being, whether you felt that was a difficult thing to move from one to the other. Um, any reflections really on, on how they became such different and yet distinctive pieces of work?
4: Yeah. Um first, though, can I say, I think we should keep that bit and um, of what you said about the books, and then I can put it on the blurb, because that was really nice, what you just said about what? it. <laughs> just the Summary nice book. things you said about it. I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> Tiffany Atkinson said nice things about my book, <laughs> here it is.
3: Um, You're welcome.
4: Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask, how long was it between your first and your second collections?
3: Ages. <laughs> years, yeah. years and years, I think. because. Um, 2000 sorry I' think now about four or five years
4: yeah because um, I think it's yeah. that's about the same I guess I started writing Alzheimer's and a spoon in like 2015 and it was published in 2017 but some of the poems in in bed with the feminists were actually from around the same time and like right up to the present as well so mm. um mm. I don't know I'm kind of confused about how how they do relate to each other I think um I don't know almost like they're different eyes in in the different yeah. books or something yeah yeah it I didn't actually find it that tricky t- in terms of um following on from the first book because I don't I, I don't feel like I've got any sense of that I'm following on from it. And I wonder mm, if that's mm. because I have done other things or do other things in between, you know, like different plays and um, stories. And, and yeah, I'm not really sure why I'm not as freaked out about it as I perhaps should oh, be. <laughs> that's,
3: no, that's good. No, and I don't think you should. I mean, for one thing, there doesn't need to be any connection between the two, you know, mm. and and the kind of the lack of – angst about it, I think is it sounds to me very very healthy. And as you were talking, what kind of flashed into my head was something I read on God knows what Twitter or something recently about the, the marketing of young poets. It, effectively, you know that that it's become fairly standard, I think, in the UK for for emerging poets to have a a voice, an identity, a kind of a, a look almost. Um, although one would think that's irrelevant to the to the actual work. A, a voice, a, a set of issues—you uh, know—a kind of ecological preoccupation, or a, a family preoccupation, or something—and and I wonder whether that isn't quite inhibiting for the writers themselves, who presumably yeah, didn't people set love out to, to put write you in a pigeonhole, in eh? Um, well, I think marketing loves to put you in a pigeonhole, mm. needs to needs to to an extent, but it, it from a writer's point of view, I mean, what I'm interested in here is like what it means to be the writer and how best to make your practice possible. It sounds like having lots of other things going on and and not necessarily thinking of a collection in terms of a collection, but perhaps a, an accumulation of individual pieces of work is a very healthy and enabling way of doing it, you know?
4: Um, yes, I think that's true. And yeah, I think theres there's got to be something that um, hinges it all together as a book, but that doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily have to fit with the personal pigeonhole you know like mm-hmm. i'm i'm not that interested in neatness and and how best to be boxed up so i um yeah. and i feel like that is something that maybe has changed since the first collection
3: mm-hmm. um and
4: mm-hmm. that maybe ref- is reflected in what you're saying about them being more experimental that I think I'm much more interested in, in prodding all the places I was too afraid to look at before.
3: Yes. I mean, I, I think that that there is something about sort of earning, it feels like one's earned the right to do that. I mean, it probably shouldn't, but I, I, I'm just reflecting on my own experience where my first collection was, I think more in, in inverted commas personal as in dealing with sort of family things that, that, um, I somehow felt I needed to commemorate before I could kind of move on to other things. Yes. And,
4: was your first one yeah. King and Particle?
3: Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but not like yours. I mean, not not. It didn't have the the sort of narrative weight of yours. And I, I just, I just, just because I'm nosy, I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about how it felt to write. If you could say a little bit about um, the family history you're drawing on in um, Alzheimer's and a Spoon.
4: I think it was like a really necessary excavation for me because my um, m- my um, it was a way of the dealing with the not talking of the family. Like um, mm-hmm. I come I come from a family of really strong Catholics who you know don't who just don't talk about things. Um, any of the things and so I found out really I found out my grandmother's story um, essentially so she was a frontline soldier in the Warsaw Uprising Um, and because of that when the um, communists came and took over Poland after the war she was then basically Mm. an enemy of the state Mm. and she couldn't go back there till 1986. Later on in her life she developed Alzheimer's and there were so many things that I wanted to ask her that she mm. could no longer remember, you know. And I, um, and had always wanted to forget, you know. Um.
3: Yeah.
4: And so for me, that I, I had a lot of emotion about that, and I think it was a way of of writing around both of those things.
3: Yeah, it's. I mean, it is a terrifically powerful collection, and also funny. I mean, I also it's quite. <laughs> You didn't expect to laugh out loud at poems, but, but you know, there's some really witty sort of turns in there that totally put, took me by surprise. Mm. <laughs> I was sort of like, that's great. I mean, I, I, I love that. I love the sort of the humor, because humor can also be very serious, can't it? I think there's a kind of misunderstanding about that, that you have to be humorous or serious and they can't be both at the same time.
4: Absolutely. And I think as well, like you can, when you understand as well that humour is a coping strategy, then Mm -hmm. it adds an extra level of seriousness to what you are um, reading. Yeah, I think that's really true.
3: (laughs) Have your family, do your family read your work? Um.
4: Some of them read some of my work.
3: <laughs> my, <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> um, so I've got um, my an aunt who lives in Germany who's been really really good at finding out more of my grandmother's story, and she was really helpful in in finding out some of that. And you know, still keeps in touch with a lot of that. And my mm-hmm. as well has been really um, helpful with that. But they, I mean, just as I was brought up in that don't talk about it um way um you know they had to learn that from somewhere to bring me up in that Mm. way didn't they so Mm. I feel Mm. like um with every generation um talking about the things we're taught not to say gets easier
3: (laughs) yeah yeah but every generation has its own set of things not to say I mean I kind of I just totally with, with teaching that that, and I know you do a lot of work with young with children actually and young people and yeah you kind of think oh it must be easy for them because they don't have to repress this that and the other and in some respects their lives seem very free of perhaps some of the pressures that we might have had as younger uh people and yet they have their own things that they can't say and that that that's very interesting I and mean, is that is that your experience as well mm,
4: like um uh just to take one example i think for any of the young queer kids it's much easier for them to say that they are not straight but yeah. then they have i watch some of them feeling the pressure that they have to say what kind of not straight they are like they have to mm. know mm. definitively and choose from you know a known list of mm. of what what these things are and i think that gives them a a certain freedom but then also like more limits you know so it's like mm. you say every generation has their different um challenges with that
3: <laughs> yeah no i think that's a really good example of where you know what appears to i'm assuming we're more or less the same age you, what, what might appear to us to be a certain kind of freedom is also a pressure you know to know to know, what, you know rather than hiding yeah. what you might be to be able to articulate it and that's a terrible pressure and and i mean i, I think Maybe that's what makes writing so exciting is that every new generation is finding a new voice to articulate those things. I mean, that's that's why it's urgent and why it will always be um, interesting, I think.
4: Yes, and that you can always you know, you don't just even have to leave it to the next generation. You can always do it again and again in your own voice and re-articulate things and retell things and re- yeah. you know, mess them up. And like you said before, play with them. You can play with things until you feel that they fit.
3: That's a lovely piece of advice um, that, that we might sort of start to to wrap up on. I mean, on the subject of kind of passing on experience, I, I just wanted to ask you um, if you could, if there was anything you might have done differently, you know, knowing what you know now as a kind of established writer, is there anything that you would have done differently when you were starting out?
4: I don't know. I mean, I no like not just in writing in life there are many things i could have done differently you know but i think that's one of the that's one of the beautiful things about writing is you can write them again and again and again you know like and um i think that rather than thinking about what i would have could have should have done i feel like i've still got a lot of time um and a lot of places to to prod that or to mine that somehow and to yeah. think what would it you know it's okay to wonder I think like what would it have mm. been like if
3: I'd like to ask you to read a poem and you said I could make a request so if I am allowed to make a request I'd love to hear you read stainless steel kudos uh, yes of course book, which I think is an absolute belter of a poem
4: yeah I I would be very happy to read that for you um I had thought of one from the new collection I would read as well.
3: Read two. would be
4: lovely. Um, okay. Hashtag stainless steel kudos. I know an old lady who swallowed a spoon. I know a younger one who heard the story and went on to swallow too. I know the guy who thought to film her doings and put it on YouTube. I know 912,102 people so far watched her, and cutlery freak at college said hashtag stainless steel kudos, so I guess that's cool. I know about copycat action, so I'm just saying don't try this at home, even if it's for your art. I know that mass stupidity dictates that there will be a viral spoon swallowing challenge coming our way soon. I know that I will be called stupid and a spoil sport for citing safety and sanity and declining to do it. I know there will be well-meaning articles about what spoon-swallowing well means, and underneath the shiny hype will be one old lady, numb, swallowing.
3: Yeah, that's so good. It's that last Thank line as well. as well. Totally yeah. t- t- takes you by surprise, which all the best work does. So that's oh, thank from your you. first collection. Um, so yeah, it'd be great to hear one from, from the forthcoming In Bed With The Feminists as well. You-
4: oh, it sounds so good, doesn't it? Um, the forthcoming collection.
3: The forthcoming In Bed With The Feminists. Yeah, it's a great title as well. <laughs> thank you.
4: Um, explore unique interior nook designs. The image is of a theta, a five, a plus, plus a three. A theta is a world, split is love over death, is the eighth letter, is. They cracked her crypt hand with H O P E. In God there is, she wrote. A theta is not to be confused. The image is of a purple heart pulsing. It belongs to emoji one point zero. Plus Unicode 6.0. It is the favicon on the Ann Lister encoder slash decoder. Plus it means physical attraction. Plus it means you share a best friend on Snapchat. Plus it means romantic love. Plus it means honour. Plus sacrifice. Plus support. Plus admiration for things that have relation to the colour purple. Plus you can use it on Instagram to comment on clothes. She sends me a purple heart pulsing. The image is of yellow wallpaper. A sunny aspect, ironically, in strips. The images of light on bricks, a crypt encrypted in, in hope there is. You can hide things for so long. Niche interests, unique interiors. You can only hide things for so long.
3: Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I really hope we get to meet in real life. <laughs> I know, we'll have, to, or... we'll have
4: to make a point of it.
3: <laughs> yes, we will. Yes, I will say either in Norwich or, you know, if I'm lucky in New Zealand. Um, That would be great. Thank you so much, Liz Breslin, for talking to me today.
4: Thank you so much, Tiffany Atkinson, for having
3: me today. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening and many thanks to Liz and Tiffany and also to you, Flo, for coming on and talking about the new book club.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I can't wait to talk about Abir Mukherjee's A Rising Man with People and then start reading, in other words, by John Lahiri.
0: Yeah, check down in the show notes for links to the book club and all the other events we've been talking about. If you want to get in touch with us about any of those upcoming events or anything else to do with writing, then you can find us always on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. You can check out our Facebook page. And if you go to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter.
1: As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation today by heading over to the National Centre for Writing website and hitting support us in the top right hand corner.
0: If you enjoyed the episode, please do leave us a review on iTunes or in your favourite podcast app. It does help other people to find and check out the podcast. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will catch you next week.